You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. The thesis for precious metals in particular, gold, just has never been better. And uh, with some of the new companies that are coming out and they're very good teams in my view, um, there could be a lot of value created uh, and profits for investors. And so I think this is, out of all the sectors to be in right now, I think the gold sector is where you want to be. This is Mining Stock Education, and I am your host, Bill Powers. Thank you for tuning in. Well, we're touching base with Brian Lenny. He's the founder and editor of Junior Stock Review. Find more about Brian's subscription service at juniorstockreview.com. Brian also has a free email list that I'd encourage you to sign up on, and that, again, is at juniorstockreview.com. Brian, thanks for coming on Mining Stock Education. Again, I appreciate your time and joining me today. Let's start about start talking about M&A, mergers and acquisitions. Do you still feel like with where we're at in the gold cycle that it's good to look as possible investments, possible takeover targets? Absolutely. Um, actually, I think it's going to be quite a hot uh, portion of the market um, in the near near future. I think the, the only reason why we may not have seen it on a grand scale right now is considering all the uncertainty that's in the market. And, uh, you know, the next... Even up, leading up to the end of the year, I think companies are still kind of wondering what's going to happen maybe with this second wave of COVID and, um, you know, the other stuff that's going on in the in the Western world with the protests and such. So, um, yeah, M&A has been on my mind for the last month or so. And, and uh, I've been trying to identify what I think are the top candidates um, for this next M&A cycle. And what would be some of the, let's say, the top three qualities that you would look for in a takeover target? Uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is probably jurisdiction. Um, I think that at least in the, again, in the immediate term, um, tier one jurisdictions are going to stand out. And, uh, you know, those being, you know, Canada, the U.S., Australia, uh, parts of Europe, too, depending on where it is, um, will be at the forefront of, of the M&A activity. And just because, you know, when you're dealing with an uncertain world, um, I think you can depend more on those tier one jurisdictions to be somewhat stable. And so I think that'll be the focus, at least in the immediate term. Um, next to that, you know, I think there's there's kind of uh, going to be a focus on quality over quantity. In the last cycle, we saw, you know, more companies playing to the quantity, meaning they were trying to add as many resources or many ounces of gold to their bottom line. Um, and, you know, I guess that's kind of what the market was asking for. But this time, I think it might be a little bit different. I think they're going to go for quality first. And so you're looking or they're probably going to look for stuff in, you know, first quartile economics. Um, and that's got size. And uh, by first quartile economics, I mean, you know, all in sustaining cash cost um, in terms of gold. Let's say it's the, the AISE for, um, for their operation. And uh, then next to that, you know, it's it's tough. You know, we, we, we live in a zero interest rate um, society now, uh, but I still think upfront capital costs are going to be a big thing. And so I would tend to guess that uh, big projects with good cost structures that have low upfront capital um, are going to be um, at the forefront of uh, M&A. So if I had to pick three, um, those would be the ones. When we're talking about capital expenditure and specifically late stage development projects that will within a year potentially be in production, assuming they raise the necessary capex. 
There's been um, at least three companies that I'll mention here. Alexco Resources has said that they're moving forward with silver production at Kino Hill, and they're going to do a private placement. Uh, Mako Mining announced recently they're building a mine in Nicaragua, and they're going to do a, a private placement to cancel some debt, polish off the treasury, use it for CapEx. And then a company I work with and am invested in, Arcana, uh, has done a number of raises since last September. And they need to do that as part of the debt facility that they're trying to finalize before they go into production. What do you want to see on these 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 um, junior miners that have, let's say, less than $40 million worth of CapEx to raise? Would you like it to be primarily a debt facility? Because then once they go into production, they pay it off. It seems like they don't take away a little bit of the leverage. Do you view private placements as too dilutive if they're that close to producing and cash flow? Uh, what are your thoughts here? That's a good question, um, but it's hard to answer because I think uh, the question's always going to depend. Um, if the company has a great share structure and they're at that point where they need that final 40 million for their hurdle, um, I probably wouldn't see a big issue with them you know, issuing more shares to raise that capital. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, if it's a company that's it's taken a while, maybe you know six, seven, eight years to get to where they are, they've got a half a million shares out, and you know they need to maybe double that to get that last uh, forty or fifty million. Um, then you you may want you you may have question marks over uh, whether it should be an equity financing. Um, debt, you know, if things don't go well, uh, debt can be <laughs> a tough thing to. Um, to service. And, you know, I think we're going to see that, you know, at the country level, unfortunately, in our economies where, you know, debt has spiraled out of control. And not only is the debt spiraling out of control, but servicing that debt on a yearly basis. And I think the same thing can happen with the junior company. You know, the fact is they don't have cash flow. And thus, you know, debt is a big risk. Whereas if you raise it through equity, you're diluting shareholders that have been loyal to you. Um, but, um, it doesn't have necessarily the same risk component. So I know I'm not fully answering your question, but I would say it depends. It depends on the company and the situation. And I can see both um, scenarios working well uh, for the company. And again, it just depends. When I'm on board the ship, so to speak, then I don't want to see excessive dilution. So that's from being on the ship. That's the vantage point that I look at these things from. And one company that you've mentioned uh, on my show previously is O3 Mining. And you're on board with that company as an investment. And they just closed a $40 million bought deal on June 19th. Uh, what are your thoughts here when they have raised this much money? Was this a bother to you or do you think you trust them with this raise? Well, there's a, there's a couple different ways I can answer that. I think the, the first thing that I would say um, is that there are so many companies out there that I've seen and owned over the last probably decade that have had trouble raising money. And it's always, you know, we're going to do a thousand meter drill program, 2000 meter, you know, they don't hit or, you know, they have trouble raising money after the fact. Um, and there's a lot of risk in that. Um, and then you go to the other side into the uh, Cisco group and they sort of unique in the first company that I've ever encountered that is seemingly able to to raise money at the drop of a dime. Like they raised four hundred million dollars um, to develop their windfall project um, in a down market, which I I find very impressive. The other side to that is you're absolutely right. Dilution is is the silent killer that, you know, too many investors don't um, pay much attention to and they should. 
Um, with this uh, particular deal, this financing, um, what I think is really interesting, and it's, it's sort of unique, to, well, it's basically to most of the Quebec junior miners, um, they're able to access uh, charitable flow through. And for those who don't know what that is, uh, charitable flow through has a large um, tax write-off. And so I think when I was looking at some of the statistics last year and talking to the different companies, typically a charitable flow through uh, placement is done at basically uh, 80% premium on the current share price. So meaning if the company is trading for a dollar, um, that financing would be on average at a dollar 80. And so what's interesting about that, if you think about it, that's almost double the current share price, which means in actual fact, they're diluting by half as much. So that $40 million uh, placement really, in actual fact, to most other junior companies is really like a 20. And Quebec in particular is interesting because they pay back roughly 30% for your, your, your basically your drilling expenditures. So that's an added bonus. Um, and then one more note on the O3. So that wasn't all charitable flow through. I forget what the ratio between hard dollars and, and charitable flow through were, um, but there was a hard dollar component. Um, but putting it all together, I, I'm very happy. Uh, you know, O3 continues to be the largest position in my portfolio. The value proposition is exceptional. And they're aggressively going to drill their properties. And uh, I have a lot of confidence that that value is going to be unlocked, even though you're right. That is a lar large amount of money to raise. And there is some dilution. So you like the projects. You've spoken about that in the past. And obviously, you have to trust the management to take this $40 million and create more value for you. Absolutely. And that's, that's actually, you know, first and foremost, I think with any investment or speculation in the junior resource sector, this is why you continually will hear, um, you know, the, the, the sages of the investment world, Rick Rule, they'll, they'll start their conversation with the people. And so you want to find those histories of successful people. But even on the other side of things, I, I, and this is why conferences to me were, were so valuable is that you get a chance to meet the people and see how they interact with other people, see how they interact with you, how they answer your questions, you know, how much time they give you. Um, once you start understanding who these people are and the value systems which they use to conduct themselves, um, I think you can realistically have a good idea of how they're going to conduct their business, you know, when nobody's looking. And for me, Jose Vizcarra um, is, is one of those guys that I trust and is going to be putting that money into the ground and, um, you know, trying to unlock value. And the other side about Jose is that I believe he put in almost another $3 million into this placement, putting him, him and his family close to $10 million, I think. Um, so he's putting his money where his mouth is too, which really helps. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. At Silver One's Candelaria Mine Project in Nevada, there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver, which Silver One is developing and advancing. The company's Phoenix Silver Project, located within the Arizona Silver Belt, is an early stage exploration project on which native silver vein fragments have been discovered near surface. One grab sample assayed an astounding 14,688 ounces per ton. Yes, that's right. Ounces, not grams. Silver One has tremendous exploration potential, is extremely leveraged to the price of silver, and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to SilverOne.com. That's SilverOne.com.
with these companies, exploration and development companies that are pre-revenue at this stage of the bull market as gold is uh, doing really well, almost $1,800. One company I work with and I own shares in is Osino Resources. Osino raised $14 million about six months ago. Then they just recently announced a bought deal that's going to be possibly as much as $17 million with the overallotment. That comes with a warrant. So, And they already have a lot of in-the-money warrants. They already have a lot of money in the bank, two to three years. They have a lot of in-the-money warrant money that's going to be coming in. Then they went ahead and raised again. I mean, they're just cashed up. Is that what you want to see at this stage of the game? Do you think that's a smart move? If, if the executive is looking at this and saying, listen, goal's at almost a near all-time high again. If there's a pullback, I want to strike while the iron's hot, while these people are trying to offer me money. Yeah, that's it's a great question, and it's something to contemplate. Um, again, I think it's one of these questions where it depends, you know, where that company is in its development, um, what the market looks like, you know, especially I think right now with the amount of uncertainty that's out there, and even though the gold thesis or the precious metal thesis, in my view, has never been better than it is today, and it just seems to get better every day because of the things that are going on in the economy. Um, but I think that uncertainty, what it does to people is it does you know, force them to think, oh, you know, what a year down the line, two years down the line. And when, and the other side to that is I've been told by many, many successful CEOs in the business, when the money's there, take it. And, uh, so it's still, it comes down to one of those things where I think it depends on the company. Um, I think the uncertainty that we're seeing right now leads to companies being more apt at taking as much money as they can right now to ensure that they're insulated. And, uh, and again, you know, as an investor, something you want to watch and, you know, you want to ask the the CEO or the, you know, someone on the team, like, well, so why are you raising all this money? Where is it all going to go? What is your three to five year plan? If you've got more than this year covered, um, how does this all trickle out? And once you get an understanding of that, um, I think you can make a decision on on how you feel about what they did and whether you think it's smart or not. And then you make a decision from there, whether it's something you want to step away from or if it's something you say, you know what, they just put us in a really good position um, to execute to where the ultimate goal is. And uh, yeah, so bottom line, it's going to be on a company by company basis. Yeah. And I, I think personally, it's really attractive when the CEO can say, hey, I have four to five years of cash right now. And it also puts them in a better negotiating position. We opened the discussion talking about M&A targets. If the company is an M&A target and they're getting interest from JV partners or, or majors or mid-tiers that want to buy the company, one of the most powerful uh, positions you can have at the ta negotiation table is, I don't need you. I have three years of cash, yeah. <laughs> right? You're, you're absolutely right, Bill. That's, it, it is, it cashes. And that's the thing, like, you know, good people can't do anything without cash. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right. That's, there's a number of different ways you can look at it. And that bargaining chip um, at the table is a big deal. And especially if you don't want to be taken over. <laughs> so yeah. the ability to wait out a hostile takeover or whatever, um, you're absolutely right. Having the money, you know, bottom line is, is a big deal. Something I've been presented with more in this last year is um, board members or key shareholders or executives introducing a company to me, whether it's pre-IPO or whether it's like a dormant company that nobody's paying attention to. And I'll just term one of these um, 
categories as leaderless projects that I've been introduced to where I've, I'm told the project is so good and I say, who's running it? Oh, well, well we're looking for the CEO right now. I can't give you that information. <laughs> you know, obviously that's not attractive to me because I want to know who's going to be the captain, right? <laughs> Even if this project is so great, like who's steering the ship? But uh, yeah. what are your some, some of your thoughts here, Brian? Yeah, I think you want to be really careful. And, uh, you know, depending on, you know, it, it is, it's a, it's a really tough thing. And ultimately it comes down to who you trust. And, um, you know, depending on what your position you're in and sort of what your anchoring is in terms of how you make decisions, um, I think some people should completely avoid it. And other people, I think that there can be calculated gamble, so to speak, um, if you can work through what a deal should look like or what a deal should look like to you um, and kind of those things to look out for. Like in an RTO, you know, when a, when a private company is 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 taking over a, a public shell, um, you want to know who controls the shell, you know, how much of it. Um, is there a, a bunch of shares that could come on the market once this RTO happens? Um, in an IPO, uh, where are all the, the, the share, the founder shares, where are the seed shares, you know, what price and how much and who got them? Um, you know, starting to understand that architecture, architecture of the company and then the people that feed into it, I think are, are keys. Um, but you know, in, in the basis of it, I'm, I'm like you, I, I prefer to know who exactly is going to be, um, the captain of the ship. And, yes. uh, I want to talk to them before I, I give my hard earned money <laughs> to them, to, to just anybody. And, uh, but like, by the same token though, if, if you are able to develop relationships with, with different people and you trust their opinion, I think that there's by the same token there, you, you do have an ability, um, particularly you with how you view the sector and, and your knowledge, you can make those decisions. Um, but you gotta trust yourself. Can you give us an inkling of what type of deal flow you're seeing? And, uh, you know, is this some of the best deal flow you've ever seen or are you cautious with what's being presented to you? Always cautious. Um, maybe to the point of fault in some ways, but I'd rather say no, um, then take that chance most of the time. Um, so for me, yeah, no, the deal flow is incredible. I've, I've, I don't think I've actually seen this before, you know, in, in my experience anyways. Um, and I think there's some really good deals out there and, uh, I haven't been afraid to participate. And I think, you know, the, this next cycle that we're just starting, um, is going to be really interesting with all the things that are going on in the world. Um, the, again, the, the thesis for precious metals in particular gold just has never been better. And, uh, with some of the new companies that are coming out and they're very good teams in my view, um, there could be a lot of value created, uh, and profits for investors. And so I think this is out of all the sectors to be in right now, I think the gold sector is where you want to be. You and I met about two years ago in person at the Sprott conference for the first time. And then we uh, touch base at all the, the shared conferences that we uh, attend Beaver Creek, PDAC, uh, Mines and Money. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on how this uh, virtual conference and lack of in-person meetings might affect the sector moving forward. Have you thought through this? Like, what does this mean for investors and companies? It, I, to me personally, I have mixed uh, emotions about it. Uh, I personally like to meet the people. Um, like I, I mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, I think there's a component that you don't get in this virtual world. Um, the other side to this, I've been asking CEOs, you know, that have been 
participating in these virtual conferences and and seeing how it's going and there's a segment of the guys that say this is the best thing ever like some of them live in south america and they say look i hate having to travel to london or vancouver to do you know two days of meetings and then fly back you know it's it's a lot and i i agree it is a lot um, but I, I still go back to the personal side of things. And I think that there's things that are gained from an, the investor side that uh, being in person and that kind of networking, you're never going to get um, through the virtual stuff. And uh, so I don't to me personally, you know, once we get past all this, this COVID stuff, um, I think, you know, conferences are going to come back. And I, I do think they play such a crucial role in um the investors world particularly and uh, for me i look forward to it and i think again any investor that hasn't been going to conferences the free ones or the ones that cost um to me that they've always been an invaluable part of the due diligence process and uh i very much want to see them come back i'll never forget what you told me in a previous podcast we uh recorded where you said you love to, or a key thing for you is to observe the executives during happy hour to see what they're really like during that time. Yeah, well, it's amazing what can happen when a when somebody gets a few drinks. You know, a lot of those inhibitions are come down, and uh, in many cases, you see who the real person is. And so, yeah, that's again, those are that's information and and stuff that you can observe that doesn't cost you anything, but can be very telling into you know who you're investing in. Absolutely, Brian's website again is juniorstockreview.com. Go join his free email list and check out his subscription service. Brian, as always, appreciate your insights. Thanks for coming on today's show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.